from uh, about 15 years on up, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast, where we also veer off the serial killer path to delve into other true crime topics within our beloved community. Again, I want to say thanks to my patrons, Kaizen, Emily, Gabrielle, two Emmas, Galen, Cassandra, David, John, and my girl Judy. Thank you so much. Now this podcast will be about a serial killer of sorts, though most would call him a pioneer and gunslinger during the Old West times. His name was Porter Rockwell a.k.a. Old Port and the Destroying Angel of Mormondom. Now, the exact date of birth for Oren Porter Rockwell is actually shown on two different dates. We have June 28, 1813 or June 25, 1815 in Belchertown, Massachusetts. Either way, let's see what life was like back then. Now, in 1800, the U.S. Capitol was officially moved from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania to Washington, D.C. A few months later, the U.S. Congress met in Washington, D.C. for the first time. In 1801, Thomas Jefferson was inaugurated as the third president in Washington, D.C. In 1803, a landmark Supreme Court decision which greatly expanded the power of the court by making it their right to declare acts of Congress unconstitutional. This same year, the United States agreed to pay France $15 million for the Louisiana Territory, which was a huge amount of land from the Mississippi River to the Rocky Mountains, roughly 830,000 square miles. In 1804, we see Lewis and Clark, the famous explorers, head out from St. Louis, Missouri on a mission to explore the western part of the continent and find a route to the Pacific Ocean. The next year, Thomas Jefferson was made president again, just before Lewis and Clark reached the Pacific Ocean. Then we get into the time of Porter's birth, There was the War of 1812, which is a a long story, but in summation, Great Britain were making attempts at restricting the new country's trade, new U.S. naval activities, as well as expansion westward to find new territories. The infant United States fought against the British, Canadian, and Native American forces during this war, including the capture and burning of the nation's capital in August of 1814. Also in 1814, Francis Scott Key wrote the Star-Spangled Banner. But they were able to recover with a new confidence and spirit of patriotism, and the war ended with a treaty in 1815. 
many U.S. citizens celebrated this war as a, quote, second war of independence. So it was during this time of expansion and through strife and the birth of a nation when Porter was born. Now his paternal ancestors had come to the New World sometime in the mid-1600s from Fitzhead, Somersetshire, England to the Norwich, Connecticut area. The town of Norwich wasn't technically founded, though, until 1784. The first generation born in the New World was Josiah Rockwell in 1662. The next generation was Daniel Rockwell, born in 1689 in Norwich. Then came Amariah in 1728, and the next was Jabez, who was born in Coventry, Connecticut in 1760, this, of course, being Porter's grandfather. His father, Oren Sr., was born in 1784 in Tolland, Connecticut. Porter's mother was Sarah DeWitt, born in 1785 in Massachusetts. Her past family had also come from England. Now, Oren and Sarah were married in November of 1809, and together they had a total of nine children, Porter being the second born and the first son. In 1817, when Porter was still a very small child, and also before most of his siblings had even been born, the family moved to near Manchester, New York. Once there and the family had settled, they got some new neighbors. Oren then met and befriended a man named Joseph Smith Sr., who had just moved from Vermont to that area. Joseph's son, of course, being the Joseph Smith, who founded the Mormon religion. Now, it was during this time that, in the area that they were living in, there was this described kind of, quote, intense religious revivalism during the Second Great Awakening, occurring between 1790 and 1840 where people were spreading their Protestant beliefs through emotionally charged sermons that led to a lot of religious reform movements. The key to this was indeed the revivals they held, and the emphasis was on salvation by institutions. This awakening comforted people during a time when there were a lot of social and political changes happening in America. Now, Joseph Smith's story is a whole other podcast entirely, but a very, very long story short, in 1820, this man claimed he began having visions, his first being two personages, meaning the literal God and Jesus. Another vision was just a few short years later when he claimed an angel allegedly directed him to a buried book of golden plates with writing etched into them with Judeo-Christian history of an ancient American civilization. The English translation, of course, became the official book of Mormon. He then established the Church of Christ and then later were called Latter-day Saints, a.k.a. Mormons. So Porter and Joseph Jr. became friends as their fathers had indeed become close, though Joseph Jr. was about 8 to 10 years older than Porter. Porter spent a lot of time at his friend's house and farm, and it is reported that Joseph Jr. actually acted as kind of a big brother to Porter. 
However, it is important to know that Porter never really learned to read or write. Now, illiteracy wasn't that uncommon back then. But the two families got together in the evenings during the growing season and even more during the winter. Joseph's father was given the title of Master Mason in 1818. He took his sons on treasure digging excavations and one of the, quote, eight witnesses of the Book of Mormon. Interestingly, though, Joseph Sr. was actually not really interested in organized religion, outside of considering himself a spiritual man and let his wife control the religious upbringings of their children, which actually upset her greatly and she prayed and prayed saying she had received a divine message telling her that her husband would quote accept the pure and undefiled gospel of the son of god unquote and of course it was then that he began having visionary dreams with a lot of symbolism So in the 1820s, Joseph Jr., of course, began speaking about his visions and these golden plates, and as you might have guessed, the Rockwell family were some of the very first to hear all about it, and of course, it would have made a huge impression on Porter. And actually, young Porter reportedly went out and picked berries at night during his free time, and he also hauled wood into town, which would have been very hard work, and sold that to help pay to publish the Book of Mormon. Now, the Church of Christ was officially organized in April of 1930, and Joseph Sr. was baptized. It is said that when his father rose back out of the water, Joseph Jr. exclaimed, quote, Oh my God, I have lived to see my own father baptized into the true church of Jesus Christ. Unquote. Now, 16-year-old Porter was also baptized around this same time into the church of Christ. He was the youngest member of the group to do this. And this was basically all I could find about his childhood, so let's dig in. I don't think it would be considered any mystery that Porter was born during a time where people had to work very hard to carve out a life. He was born during the Industrial Revolution, though, when new manufacturing processes were coming at breakneck speed. But he lived with his rather large family, working on a farm, which is indeed very hard work. There's a story about him breaking his leg as a child, and the doctor couldn't quite set it perfectly, so it didn't heal as it should have, leaving him with a small limp that I would imagine would have irritated him from time to time. So when the Smiths moved into a neighboring farm, the family became fast friends, and this would not necessarily be out of the norm. Both families had a number of children that would, of course, play together. None of this really comes as a shocker, but what did kind of surprise me was the organized religious indifference that Joseph Sr. had until his son began having his visions. Now, how the Smiths were able to convince the Rockwells about these new revelations about buried gold tablets and the creation of a new church, whatever, it worked. The Rockwells joined right in, and this had to have left a big impression on Porter. 
Porter, without question, looked up to Joseph Jr. like an older brother and most certainly had believed the stories that he was told by him, especially when his parents believed it so intensely and blindly as well. And it's no wonder what with the popularity of religious reform movements at the same time. It was at this point that Porter's loyalty to the Smith family and Joseph Jr. in particular became unwavering. But let's get back into it. So in the early 1831, the Smiths decided to take their new church headquarters and move it to Kirtland, Ohio. Joseph Jr.'s mission was to, quote, gather people into settlements called cities of Zion, where they could find refuge from the calamities of the last days, unquote. Yes, folks, revelations. Now, the men of the group were told to go out and convert more people to come into their church. This missionary program was pretty successful and really still continues today. One of the males sent out for recruitment was, in fact, Porter Rockwell, as he was sent on to Jackson County, Missouri. Now, this place is of huge importance to Mormons. It's located from the heart of Kansas City, Missouri, and forms almost a box around the southeast section of the rest of Kansas City, touching into the farming communities just past the more congested part. Now, back then, obviously, Kansas City was not as big as it is today. Jackson County's first courthouse was actually built in 1827, and it still stands there today. In 1831, Joseph Jr. had a huge revelation where he said Jackson County was the new Jerusalem, the actual site of the biblical Garden of Eden where Noah's Ark was actually built and, you guessed it, where the second coming of Christ was going to happen. And of course, Joseph knew exactly how it was going to happen. So you can kind of see how important this area was to them. Porter went there to aid in the efforts to convert everyone and anyone, including the Native Americans, and he was actually well-liked. He met and married Luana Beebe there, though she too was from New York. She and Porter went on to have three children, Emily, Caroline, and Oren. During his time in Missouri, he became a skilled marksman with a gun and also operated a ferry to cross the Missouri River, and this is how he made money. During this time, more and more Mormon settlers began to migrate to Missouri from all around New England, and by 1833, there were at least 1,200 Mormons living in that area, making up pretty much half of the population. Now, the locals in the area were not at all happy about the Mormons being there. The cultural divide alone added to the building tensions. Their rapidly increasing numbers threatened to give them political control over the towns that they were settling in. Now, the locals tolerated them in small numbers, but once they began to fervently try to convert everyone, the Mormons became simply unbearable. At this point, Joseph Sr. was ordained as the church's first presiding patriarch in December of 1833 in Kirtland, Ohio. Joseph Jr. looked up to his father as the biblical Adam. He actually said, quote, 
so shall it be with my father. He shall be called a prince over his posterity, holding the keys of the patriarchal priesthood over the kingdom of God on earth, even the church of the Latter-day Saints, unquote. Now, in late 1838, the Missouri-Mormon War, or the 1838 Mormon War, began. It had started with the locals attempting to evict the Mormons out of Jackson County, which was at first successful. Only Porter and the rest moved basically just outside of that area, which led to more tension, and again the locals tried desperately to get them to leave, to force them to leave. A fight broke out that brought out the Missouri Volunteer Militia to try to get it under control. Missouri's then-Governor Boggs issued Executive Order 44, known as the Extermination Order, which stated that the people of Missouri could evict Mormons by any means possible, including violence. Now, this order was a response to what he called quote, open and avowed defiance of the laws, unquote. Part of his order actually read, quote, their open and avowed defiance of the laws and of having made war upon the people of this state. The Mormons must be treated as enemies and must be exterminated or driven from the state if necessary for the public peace. Their outrages are beyond all description. Unquote. So the church elders would usually meet at Porter's house, who was a deacon by this point, to try to figure out how to keep the locals from persecuting them. As the local Missourians' anger toward the Mormons rose, they sort of formed a mob and showed up at Porter and his family's home, as his parents lived nearby, and Luana, Porter's wife, insisted that he go hide, so he did. The locals allegedly harassed his wife and his children and then set his house on fire. Now, that last bit source was from a Mormon talking about this, so I would take that with a tiny bit, little grain of salt. Nonetheless, he was forced to leave. It is said that Porter, along with Joseph, traveled to Washington, D.C. to try to get some level of justice against the citizens of Jackson County. They wanted the government authorities to right the wrongs suffered by their people. They were no doubt unsuccessful. So then it was rumored that Joseph ordered the assassination of Governor Boggs and that he asked his very good friend and ranking member within the Mormons, Porter, to do it. Now you see, Boggs had moved into a home within the limits of what the Mormons had deemed their city of Zion after they had all been run out. So in May of 1842, Boggs was shot by someone who fired through a window as he sat reading a newspaper. He was hit by large buckshot four times, two in the head, one in the neck, and the last in his throat. Miraculously, though very slowly, he recovered and survived. Outside, the sheriff found a revolver with buckshot still loaded inside of it. The gun, as it turned out, had been stolen from a local shopkeeper, and the shopkeeper told the sheriff that it had most certainly been done by Porter Rockwell. 
reporter was subsequently captured and held in prison for nearly a year while he awaited trial. Of course, they had no real evidence against Porter and they had to let him go, him being acquitted of all charges. Porter himself denied shooting Boggs, saying that he had, quote, done nothing criminal, unquote. He actually bragged that Boggs was still alive, wasn't he? And everyone knew he was a crack shot, so he was let go. But it was reported by a disaffected Mormon that Joseph had offered a cash reward to anyone who would be willing to murder Boggs and the person who stated said that Joseph told him specifically that Porter had pulled the trigger. So for now, the group decided to try to settle in Nauvoo, Illinois, including Joseph. Porter, of course, volunteered to stay back to ensure the safety of the rest of the group who were not far behind. He finally arrived in Illinois, having grown his hair and beard very long, and showed up at Joseph's house. And at first, Joseph thought that he was a drunken Missourian and ordered him to leave. Once he realized that it was Porter, Joseph promised Porter that, as long as he never cut his hair, he would never suffer death from a bullet, and Porter believed him wholeheartedly. In 1844, a local newspaper printed an expose about the Mormon practice of polygamy, which, for those that might not know, it means having more than one spouse and really nearly always a man having multiple or plural wives. Joseph himself had been, quote, sealed to about 30 wives, truth be told. Fearing another anti-Mormon invasion of the locals, Joseph happened to be taken to another town where he was to stand trial but was killed when a mob stormed the jailhouse. He was 38 years old. Porter would have been somewhere around 30 years old at this time. It was after Joseph's death that the church split into two groups. The Church of Latter-day Saints, or LDS, led by Brigham Young, and the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or RLDS, which was renamed Community of Christ, and actually its headquarters are still located in Jackson County today. And it was about this time that Porter was ordained a high priest. Porter followed Brigham Young, their new leader, out west after Young was ordained the president of the church in 1847. They crossed through to Winter Quarters, Nebraska, then on to the Salt Lake Valley, which was still then part of Mexico, though it had just very recently come under American control through war. The day Porter and everyone arrived was July 24th, 1847, and that day is actually recognized as Pioneer Day in Utah. It was also around this time that Porter married his second wife, Marianne. Now, Porter was actually celebrated during this journey because he was known to travel ahead two days or so to scout out better crossings and safer passages, and he was such an excellent shot that his game hunting helped to keep everyone fed. In 1849, Porter Rockwell was appointed as the deputy marshal of the Great Salt Lake City due to his very famous giftedness at shooting, endurance, 
relentlessness, and complete devotion to the church. Porter continued in this role until the end of his life. While there, he ran the Hot Springs Hotel and Brewery in southern Salt Lake City in an area known as Point of the Mountain. He became quite famous to the locals as a mountain man, and his drinking habits would also be pretty well known, although the Mormon church strictly prohibits the use of alcohol. And this is where the kind of the murdering comes in, because stories of him killing many men as a gunfighter or a religious enforcer became legendary, though Porter announced to a crowd once, quote, I never killed anyone who didn't need killing, unquote. He was referred to as the destroying angel and was said to have killed more outlaws, Mormon outlaws, than Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday. He even had several of his own kind of classy wanted posters. So in 1857 and in his mid-40s, Porter was suspected of murdering six professional gamblers from California while they were being escorted right back out of Utah. And that's not all. Many people suspected him of killing several others, hiding behind the idea that he was the protector of the church. But as much as he had a darkness within him with the booze and the murders, he also, in an incredible act of charity, cut all of his long hair off so that Joseph Smith's brother's widow would have a wig made for her because she had contracted typhoid fever and had lost her own. And if you remember, Joseph had told him his long hair would make him invincible. So in 1866, Porter's wife, Marianne, died and he went on to marry a woman named Christine. He became famous enough that when people would go out west to meet him, he would tell them to always carry a loaded double-barreled shotgun, sleep in a dark camp, meaning far away from the fire, never trust appearances, and avoid any main trails where, quote, white Indians preyed on travelers. And by white Indians, he meant Caucasian robbers who would disguise themselves as Native Americans. But don't think that Porter got away with all of that murdering. He would finally be arrested nearly 20 years later, but before his trial was set to begin, he died, reportedly from natural causes, in 1878. He would have been in his early 60s. Elder Joseph Smith III of the Council of the Twelve said, quote, He had his little faults, but Porter's life on earth, taken all together, was one worthy of example and reflected honor upon the church. Though all his trials, he had never once forgotten his obligations to his brethren and his God, unquote. He is buried in a Salt Lake City cemetery, Joseph the Third said at his funeral, quote, They say he was a murderer. If he was, he was the friend of Joseph Smith and Brigham Young, and he was faithful to them and to his covenants, and he has gone to heaven, and apostates can go to hell. Unquote. And I know you're wondering, and yes, many of his descendants are still alive today, being his third great-grandsons and granddaughters, and they are spread all throughout the country, not just Utah. 
And I want to thank my personal friend Ryan for bringing this character up to me because it was a fascinating research and read. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Ryan. And to everyone else, thanks for listening.